Let's get medical. This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 34, part one with Scott Giles. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Welcome back, and it's so good to have you here with me right now, and also so good to have you here with this uh, conversation I just had with Scott Giles up in Illinois. Uh, I want to thank everybody, especially for the feedback we've received on last week's session, session number 33, with Raquel Knight. So wonderful to see that massive response to a program that I did with someone that most of you have not heard of. You know, you would think it'd be the game of get the biggest names out there, and that includes increases the viewership, the listening ship. Yet, wonderful to see the opposite. Someone just like you who's out there doing great work, making stuff happen, and admittedly just not making excuses for it. So uh, definitely going to be reaching out to several other friends, several other people as well um, to mix in the, uh, the, the common folk like you and I, the people out there that we have not yet heard of. Let's phrase it that way. Uh, transitioning over to someone that I'm sure most of you have heard of. Uh, Scott Giles is once again based up in Illinois. And specifically here, we just got to talking and we're going to split this up as a uh, two-part session. And I'm going to play with something new. I've actually got several podcast recordings all put together, and uh, we're going to start to mix them up. So part two of this is actually all about the ethics of our profession and all the research that's out there in terms of where we're going next. And I'm going to delay that a little bit just to mix it up. That's going to come to you probably in the next maybe two, three, or four weeks. It'll come to you soon. Uh, But the program today I want to share with you is all about the wonderful work that Scott Giles is doing up there, specifically working with cancer patients. And what I want you to take special note of here, too, is the conversation that he and I have about really the future of our profession, transitioning more to a technology-based digital access ability to reach out to clientele that physically cannot come into our office. You know, I've heard of people that, um, I've had this too, I've had clients I've worked with remotely because they were out of the country and they wanted to work with me. Yet look at the specific challenges that Scott runs into with people that uh, are going through cancer treatments and to ask them to leave their treatments, leave their home, and come into an office, it may just not be physically possible or even appropriate. So I think there's a lot of great information that I hope a lot of you take notice of in this program. Let me give you a link over to uh, his website, csgiles.org, csgiles.org. Really easy to track down. I'll put that into the show notes as well. This is part one. Part two is going to be coming at you in a couple of weeks all about ethics. Here we go. Medical hypnosis and the future with Scott Giles. So I'm always interested in asking this question just to kind of kick things off. What is it that got you into hypnosis first? (laughs) Well, when I was 10 years old, I saw Orman McGill perform his concert of hypnotism on the Art Linkletter show. And I was entranced by it. I sent away from my first book on hypnosis, which was advertised in the back of Superman comic books. Uh, You had this picture of this guy in a tuxedo with lightning bolts coming out of his fingers. And I saved up my quarters for my allowance, and I I purchased that book. 
Now, I often think that hypnotists are born, not made. You get better with training, but you've got to have a basic flair for it. And if you have that flair, it doesn't take a lot of information to make you really dangerous. And that's what happened to me. That book, while the theory in the book was, was silly, the techniques are what we teach in basic hypnosis courses to this day. So I really did hypnotize my grade school classmates to sing the Star Spangled Banner when the teacher began to erase the blackboard. <laughs> I was thrown out of school. Nice. My parents forbade me to have anything further to do with hypnosis. So, of course, it became my life's work. I would actually sneak into the adult library, go down to the 100-level stacks in the Dewey Decimal System, which is where the books were for hypnosis, and I would get a book, and I'd go hide somewhere, and I'd read it in the library. And when I went to the University of Chicago, Meadville uh, Lombard Theological School at the University of Chicago for my doctoral degree, I had the chance to actually do some coursework in hypnosis and found I really liked it. And then after graduation, I did a two-year postdoctoral training program with a practice associated with Rush Medical Center. And uh, so that was my journey into uh, professional hypnotism. Subsequently, after that two-year postdoc, I did a training course at Mindsight Institute, which is a guild school, or was a guild school in uh, Indiana. And that's how I got, I became part of the guild certification program. Excellent, excellent. So then most of your focus these days, though, is in this complementary medicine arena, correct? Uh, yeah. I'll do other things because you don't want to go stale as a practitioner, but the bulk of my practice focuses on issues of health and well-being, putting people in touch with their own natural healing power. I probably have a strong specialization into cancer. It's what I'm best known for, although I do work with other conditions as well. Got it, got it. And sort of taking things back a little bit, would you say that was a niche that found you or a niche that you went after? Oh, it's a niche that found me. When I was doing that two-year postdoc program, I was a parish minister. I was a senior pastor at the uh, church in Oak Park, a national landmark building by Frank Lloyd Wright, Unity Temple. And I had nine women in the congregation who had breast cancer. They asked if I would work with them hypnotically to help them overcome the side effects of their chemotherapy. These days, the chemotherapy we use is much more sophisticated than it was back then. So I did work with them. There was virtually no literature on how to do this. It was making it up as I went along. But all nine women did much better than anyone thought that they would do, whereupon their doctors began to want to send other patients. And pretty soon, that just took over my entire career. And then in 1990, I made the jump from parish ministry into what I do now, which is called community ministry, working with the wider community, and uh, opened up my practice. Excellent. And in terms of that split these days, uh, I know you're actually in residence at a hospital certain days of the week, correct? Correct. Well, my research program is based at LaGrange Memorial Hospital in LaGrange, Illinois. And we've been there since 1991. So it's you know, going on 24 years now. That meets every single week. I also do a monthly free hypnosis program for anyone who wants to sign up for it, provided they have cancer or are a caretaker for someone who has cancer. And that's at Little Company of Mary Hospital. I do another version of that program online and another version of that program with Wellness House, which is a big cancer support center here in the Midwest. Yeah, what I'd be curious to ask, and this is something that uh, has come up in previous sessions here, just uh, different opinions, different thoughts on this. But I know that you make use of quite a bit of technology actually during your sessions and then doing a lot of work virtually online as well. Do you feel 
I know there's differing opinions on this. Do you feel it kind of changes the aspect of the work? Or would you say it enhances the work? Just what are your thoughts on this more of a digital access on-demand style in which we're able to work with people remotely? Yeah, well, specifically on the, re- on the working remotely, I find online sessions to be completely effective. I really prefer to be doing it using a video uh, conferencing software because I'm, a little, I'm hard of hearing myself, and so it helps me to be able to see my client rather than just have to go by the audio channel alone. But I've I've been able to detect no decrease in the effectiveness of the hypnosis working virtually versus working here in the office. The only trade-off is when I have a client here in the office, I do attach them to biofeedback equipment. So as the hypnosis progresses, I see instantly what's working and what's not. I can't do that over a, a video channel, so I don't have that feedback. I have to use observation and feedback from the client to be able to determine that. But other than that, the work is completely effective. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. It was something that I originally started out thinking it's not going to be as effective. It's not going to be as workable and finding many, many times in certain situations. I mean, I, well, I'm in the Northern Virginia, DC area and sometimes the call would come in and just the, I tried to leave, but the traffic was so horrible. Yep. And the trade-off of, well, we can do it this way. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this because the, the reason that was drilled into me early on about why you should perhaps never do it was that thought of the spontaneous ab reaction, which the more that I pull people on that conversation, it, it's a thing that absolutely can happen. But I was finding more and more that the people who I'd interact with that had worked with people either in stage or in groups or in solo sessions, upwards of 10,000 plus people in front of them could still only count like one or two times where they'd run into that. Yeah. I've never had an ag reaction that wasn't uh, planned. Yes. People, uh, I think, are capable of self-regulating. And if they know that they're on a virtual channel, not in person, they will take the necessary steps to keep themselves safe when they're having their hypnotic experience. And uh, they don't lose control. Now, I don't follow the Elman style of hypnosis, so I'm not as dependent on regression to, to cause without reaction as more orthodox Elman practitioners do. My uh, theoretical loyalty is to the Ericksonian tradition and to the cognitive behavioral methodologies. So that reaction, well, I will occasionally do it. It's not a, a technique that I depend on. So the hypnosis that I do is more subdued, and clients simply have no trouble with it. Right. I'd agree with that. And the right techniques at the right time, of course, being the style, but looking at it from this little phenomenon that we're I, I, in my classes, I have a little section that I just use to expedite things, which is that I've just given a vocabulary list and we cover it in rapid fire. And the joke usually is it's only by fault of vocabulary, by fault of alphabetical order that we have to talk ab reaction first. <laughs> <laughs> so let's scare the hell out of everybody here. And now let's jump into class and have some fun. But addressing it, and there's always that disclaimer that this is something that, yes, we talk about, but Again, the more I talk to people, the more I pull people, I'm seeing single digits. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of that true spontaneous, the ab reaction induced style, which there's elements of that, not just in the Elman school, but also in others as well, of bringing up that negative sensation. If anything, the, you know, the, the control panel uh, metaphor of bring it up so you can bring it down. That's just in a lot of NLP. Mm-hmm. 
from the perspective of the, quote, spontaneous, that was that one thing that was drilled into me as to why we should not be doing these sessions. And But again, finding the convenience, finding the efficacy, and also I think it's, well, you can speak to this too, the, the ethics in terms of where all this is going, right? Right. Well, you know, it is always the practitioner's professional obligation to choose the technique that's appropriate for the client. And if you know you're going to be over a digital channel working by Skype or whatever, you have an obligation to choose the techniques that are appropriate to that medium. So, like, for example, I would try to do an instant induction that way. That's just simply good practice. What you do has to be who you are and who your client is. So on that basis, I see no problem whatsoever working online. I've got clients all over the world. I even have two in China right now. The only downside to working internationally is you have to be aware of the time difference. Yes. Nanjing, uh, China is 14 hours ahead of us. And so that makes scheduling a bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> then again, that's a good problem to have for you. So I want to kind of take things back a little bit then. I know you were trained originally in a, in a guild-based uh, school, correct? Well, I did train in a guild-based school, but actually I had, had already been practicing for some time. And I trained with a practice here in Chicago that was affiliated with Rush Medical Center. And I did a two-year program with them. So then I went to a guild school when I became part of the National Guild of Hypnotists. Yeah. I was actually a hypnotist practicing in a park with my congregation members before I was guild certified because I had come in through a different way. My decision to go into the guild was because I simply wanted to have colleagues. And the guild, I think, is the best hypnosis organization. Not that the others are bad, but the, the guild is, I think, the best hypnosis organization out there. The easiest one to join, the easiest one to be part of. We had a school that was guild certified just in Indiana so I could touch up my training and learn the guild method. And uh, so that's what I did. And had a, I've had a consistently a very, very good experience. Then, of course, uh, I ended up moving into the, onto the advisory board of the Guild on legislation and governmental concerns issues, but that's a different story. Yeah, and let's come back to that in a little bit, but I'd love to hear, and it's always interesting, I, I've discovered the statement that everyone feels they live in the Bible Belt, no matter where they mm -hmm. live. That's where they say it is. And whether it's this part of Virginia, then again, you go to Tennessee, go to anywhere, everyone's going to claim the same phrase. And just there's a rich history of people like you, people like I can reference uh, William Mitchell, the late Paul Durbin, people that were very active in terms of religion as ministers, as preachers, as different positions as well, also integrating hypnosis. So I'd ask you this, from the perspective of, let's say, the new hypnotist, that may be looking at their area and may have, and perhaps we can label them as self-limiting beliefs, but may have some perceived challenges mm -hmm. in terms of folding hypnosis into an area where they feel religion may be a challenge. I, I'd love to hear from the inside your thoughts on that. Well, it is, a, it is an issue, and I'm part of a fairly liberal denomination. I'm a Unitarian Universalist, but even so, there were concerns in the congregation that I was going to you know, do something to them with my mind. And so the best thing to do is to simply address that directly. And I would, in my, for my pulpit, I would talk about hypnotic experiences I was having or uh, share stories, success stories, that sort of thing, but always making it clear that this wasn't mind control. And I would sometimes joke that if it were possible for hypnotists to make people do things they didn't want to do, hypnotists would be running the world by now. The fact that we're not running the world 
shows <laughs> that you can't use hypnosis coercively. And that, I think, was settled it down for most people. But there always were some who were a little uh, uncomfortable with it. In terms of uh, more fundamentalist or evangelical denominations, I'm here in Wheaton, Illinois. I got Wheaton College, one of the largest Christian colleges in the nation, right in my backyard. I live above, uh, in the academic section so that my home is actually surrounded by faculty from Wheaton College. Got the Billy Graham Institute right here, too. So this is a pretty conservative area, theologically. But if you know your, your craft, if you, have, if you practice ethically, and if you, you know, do a little bit of research so you can answer questions about theology or scripture intelligently, it's really no problem. There are going to be some people who simply will never come to you, and that's okay. There are lots of others who will. Although I've had this variation where, and I hate to phrase it from a position of from pain to pleasure, from discomfort to looking for a solution, I found working with people specifically with medical issues, oddly enough, would be that group that would be more likely to bypass whatever previously held beliefs they had. Mm -hmm that they're looking for something that's going to be effective for them. They've tried a number of things. It's the downfall. It's also the benefit that in most cases, we're not their first round treatment for many different things. Absolutely. And when you're working with something like cancer care, all of the clients who come are highly motivated. They're scared. They're worried. They want help. And they're going to take the work very seriously. That tends to cut through a lot of that. Also, I'll sometimes just if I get a theological question, I'll say, I consider this to be really a, a structured scientific form of healing prayer. And I can show using research that people who do hypnosis do better medically. So the hypnotic word is the word that gives life. And scripture has always said that such words are divine. And that has always been a convincing argument. Only once have I had someone walk out of a, a workshop that I was giving uh, because of a theological objection. And, you know, I was a, it was a, an uncomfortable experience because she didn't do it quietly. She denounced me in the name of Jesus Christ as she walked out of the room. But the next day, her pastor called me and said, don't feel bad. She's walked out on me, too. <laughs> You're in good company. So let me ask you this. In terms of... And I know you do your complimentary medical hypnosis uh, training. Is that coming up this year at the Guild? No, I think it's coming up a two-year cycle. Well, we've, we first started the program. We did it every year. and We've moved it around the country. But now it's simply at the convention every second year. You know, we kind of we've taught, at this point, a lot of people how to do this, uh, this form of, of hypnotic practice. And, of course, we keep upgrading the curriculum. We're currently on version 3.5. So it's changed a lot over the years as we've incorporated new techniques and uh, new research. I'm, I'm very proud of the current version of the uh, uh, curriculum because the, uh, I really put everything I know how to do into this curriculum. So it, I think it does a very good job of teaching people how to use hypnotic technology to help people who have a medical challenge. And we use the word complementary in the sense of to make complete. The goal is to make the medical care received from the physician more effective, and that's very much what we do. Uh, my cancer patients are doing conventional cancer care for the most part, but they're also doing the hypnosis, and as the physicians have noticed, my people do better. They're always at the top of the response curve. They have fewer side effects. They tolerate the treatment better. They live longer. And over the 25 years I've been in practice in one area, I have demonstrated that 
quite well to the satisfaction of the medical community. That's fantastic. And especially that perspective of this is one of those places that when I bring up such topics to clients or even talking about it, it's more so that we're there in that complementary position to assist what's going on. Uh, I think you were one of the first ones I heard speak about how do we work in that system to help make the medications more effective, to help make the treatments more effective, that very often in terms of chemotherapy, the amount of dosage that's being given is based on how much they can tolerate, correct? Exactly so. With chemotherapy, the, the research is clear. More is better than less. But what happens is a lot of people get a suboptimal dose because they can't handle the side effects. Their cell counts crash or the nausea becomes such a, a problem they get dehydrated or they become anorexic. They, they lose so much weight. But if you're able to use hypnosis to overcome these side effects or to improve the situation for the patient, they can tolerate a higher dose. And as a result, they do better medically. So it's sort of a win-win. The patient's happy because they're doing medically better. I'm happy because I'm getting paid. The doctors are happy because they're getting paid too, and so are the hospitals. And it's a very good transaction. The only problem we face is that people with cancer, by the time they come to a hypnotist, are often tapped out financially. They've paid the deductible or co-payment on their insurance policy. They may be on a disability. And so sometimes finances are a real problem. Not for everyone, but for some. And that's why I maintain my three free programs. So even if a person can't afford to pay me, I still have something I can do to help them. But again, my, my practice is not just a hypnosis practice. It is considered a ministry as well. And the charitable portion of that, therefore, is important. And there are always enough people who want the most powerful customized treatment and are willing to pay for that. And that's how I earn my living. Excellent. So let's transition over and head over to just the whole concept of you on the advisory board and the ethics within our profession and kind of a, well, a moment to just kind of ask a simple question. How are we doing right now? <laughs> in terms of ethics or in terms of legislation? Let's say just in terms of the profession of the what used to be referred to as the, quote, lay hypnotist, and let's perhaps reframe it as the um, hypnosis practitioner, the non-medical hypnotist. I think as a profession, we're light years ahead of where we were, say, 20 years ago. We are much more professional. We are much more research-based. People who, if you talk to the old timers, they'll tell you stories that are kind of surprising about what it used to be like when you would go to a hypnosis convention and uh, two thirds of the uh, workshops were on past lives or talking to angels. We used to have uh, practitioners who specialized in casting out evil spirits. Uh, I'm not making this up. This is what it, what it was like. Now we, uh, we understand hypnotic technology better. Our curriculums for training are much better than they were. We hold our practitioners to a higher standard of practice. The Ethics Committee rigorously enforces the Code of Ethics of the National Guild of Hypnotists. So we're, as a profession, light years ahead of where we were. And correspondingly, much better accepted by the public. We're no longer regarded as, uh, you know, sideshow practitioners or uh, people of dubious moral qualities. We're regarded as valuable professionals in the community, and we see that. That's why the legislation has become so important, because as we become larger as a profession, and as we become more respected as a profession, we compete more effectively with other helping professionals, and they don't like that. 
And so we face pressure from them legislatively to kind of keep us under control. So then let me ask you this. I'm obviously practicing within the appropriate terminology, practicing under the code of ethics. As we look at this, what is, in your opinion, the best thing that we all could be doing out there just to really advance hypnosis and what we do? Well, I think the best thing is to be, be careful about what you say and what you write. As I've said many times, legislatively, what's going to get you in trouble is the words that come out of your mouth or the words you've written down on paper. It is important that you not sound like a medical doctor or a psychologist or a, a psychotherapist unless you are one in virtue of another credential. So you shouldn't be using psychological language in your practice. You shouldn't be attempting to diagnose. You shouldn't be talking about treating or prescribing anything. And if you use these words, you are entering into the protected scope of practice of other licensed professions, and they'll have something to say about that. So the very best thing we could all do is be careful about our words. The Guild has created a recommended terminology for hypnotic practice. We give it away on our website. It's free. Anyone may use it, even if they are not members of the National Guild of Hypnotists. And it's specifically created to keep people out of trouble. We use common language equivalents for all the problems that a hypnotist would work with on a client. We carefully avoid the dangerous words like treat, diagnose, prescribe. And by showing the other professions this degree of respect, they think better of us too. So good fences make good neighbors. And if we're not trying to pretend to be junior psychologists, we have less trouble with the psychological community and with the medical community and so on. So be careful about the words. Use proper terminology. And I'd even say it even has a lot to do with the number of states where the word hypnotherapy comes under fire. Correct. I'd be the one to always show the Google search results that about 60,000 people are searching the word hypnotist and about 17,000 people a month are searching the word hypnotherapist. So I bow down to Google and give my clients what they're looking for on that note. Even if I, I am in a state where the word hypnotherapy is non-regulated, we're fine to use the word. Yeah. Just finding that, again, it comes down to use the terminology. I've even shared the experience before that I've had clients, and I say this in my, my phrasing on it all is that I, I take a very evolutionary mindset to things, that these other professions are still around because for a lot of the people, a lot of the time, they work. And if we were to get a cold, we wouldn't do a bloodletting because we found out that doesn't work. And the same things can be said about hypnosis in terms of this is why we're still around. This is why this still exists. And in many ways to find those supporting roles. And it's interesting to hear that, yes, there sometimes is the see it as competition conversation, yet I'm looking at my schedule this week and I've actually got three medical doctors in the office as clients. Absolutely. I, I have the same sort of thing. I routinely work with medical professionals. It's not that hard to, to practice cleanly, and you're going to be better off. When the Guild chose to make its uh, recommendation that we, instead of calling ourselves hypnotherapists, we moved to the term consulting hypnotist. When we made that recommendation, it wasn't made lightly. We, we, we test marketed this before we, we recommended it. And what we consistently found was the title consulting hypnotist tested better with the general public than the term hypnotherapist. So you actually will get more people into your practice as your client 
if you call yourself a hypnotist versus a hypnotherapist. It's a funny thing. The only people who seem to care about this are the practitioners, not the, uh, not the <laughs> public. And the public prefers the, the term hypnotist. They understand it. When they see hypnotherapist, they immediately think psychotherapist and that you're telling them that there's something wrong with them. Whereas the, the term hypnotist is much less threatening. The, uh, and uh, uh, here in Illinois, the, the, you can call yourself a hypnotherapist if you want, but I use the term consulting hypnotist very rigorously and I'm, I'm happy to do so. It's, it's helped me. And some states, of course, the term hypnotherapy is a regulated term, and you can't do it unless you're licensed as a psychologist or psychiatrist. Would you say that those decisions would be based more on the word therapy or the word hypnosis? I think it's based on the word therapy. Yeah. Increasingly, a state government says if you're saying you're doing therapy, then you should be regulated. You should have a, a license as a some form of therapeutic practitioner. In Connecticut, a judge actually ruled that hypnotherapy is psychotherapy by means of hypnosis. So if you're doing hypnotherapy, you have to be licensed to practice psychotherapy in that state. Whereas in other states, they, they, they of course, take a different view of it. But the word therapist gets you in trouble. And it's easier to simply call yourself a consulting hypnotist and uh, to describe consulting hypnotism as, as we do, helping ordinary everyday people with ordinary everyday problems. And I would add, and talking about it in ordinary everyday language. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com. Hey, it's Jason Lynette here. And just one more quick thing. Have you ever heard the phrase... I felt relaxed, but I don't know if I was hypnotized. Well, if you've heard that statement before, what it basically means is that one of the most important ingredients of your hypnotic session or demonstration simply wasn't there. If your participant or your client leaves without the conviction and belief that they really experienced a state of hypnosis, one of the most important and essential ingredients, again, just wasn't there. And what I've done for you is I've put together some real-world tested strategies, powerful, proven strategies, things that I make use of before, during, and after my hypnosis sessions that help me to build greater conviction, increase the belief in the process, and by accident, turn my clients into raving fans of their experience. It's all put together for you in a program I call Hypnotize with Conviction. Several different strategies, again, before, during, and after your session or even demonstration that I know are going to change the way that you do hypnosis. Whether you're a hypnotherapist or a stage hypnotist, these techniques are for you. Check it out online today, hypnotizewithconviction.com.